Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, and welcome, everyone. We appreciate so much your participating. Um, these are times where uh, intelligent, uh, straightforward conversation about a lot of the institutional challenges and questions we have about really our society and our how our society is governed it's very difficult to to find a source and a reference that seems centered on the issues and that's one of the things that uh, is in your uh, bag of skills is the ability to present issues and have an have us as lay people understand the complexity so our theme um, is really a broad one, yet we're going to get into very specific examples in order to demonstrate it. And the theme really is in, in our tripart system of government with the executive legislature and the judicial, the role that seems to be evolving for the judiciary, principally the Supreme Court, of course, as we move through these um, evolving views about societal values, which to me is what a lot of the questions really come down to. So in parallel with an abstract discussion like that, we're also going to talk about your book. And the title of it maybe is a great place to start because the title, when I first read it, I said, okay, I have to figure out what this means. Worse than nothing. Well, I guess there I could think of situations I've been in where nothing was better uh, than being there. But this actually, when we find out what this title means, it's a very poignant expression about your views about originalism as a methodology for interpreting the Constitution. So let me shut up and turn it to you and give us kind of the big picture of the concept of originalism. Sure. Let me say what an honor and pleasure it is to be with you and to have the chance to talk about this. Originalism is the idea that the meaning of a constitutional provision is fixed when it's adopted and can change only by amendment. So it says that the First Amendment means the same thing as it did in 1791, and if it's going to do anything different, it has to be done by amendment. The 14th Amendment about equal protection means the same thing as it did in 1868 when it was adopted. And one of the key points I try to make in the book is how absurd it is to say we're going to be governed by the specific views of 1791 or of 1868. Take the Second Amendment adopted right. in 1791. Do we really believe that we should have the same rules about guns today existed then, or take equal protection. Mm -hmm. Those who are originalists say that the equal protection clause doesn't apply to stop sex discrimination or discrimination against gays and lesbians, because that wasn't what the framers intended in 1868. Why should we govern by their views? Right. So what's the analog for originalism? If, if you say originalism is worse than nothing, well then what's better than nothing? Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has looked to many sources in interpreting the Constitution. It always starts with the text, but the words of the Constitution are intentionally quite open-ended and ambiguous. I think it's always worth considering what did the framers intend. I don't think we're bound by their views, but they were wise people. Sure. What did they think? We should also look at history, and we should look at precedents from the Supreme Court, and we should look at modern social needs. Take the example of gun control. I think, as the dissenting justices say, 
We should consider the problem of gun violence in the United States in deciding what gun control is allowed. Or when we talk about equal protection, we should look at advances in our understandings with regard to equality, not limit ourselves to what they thought in 1868. Mm -hmm. This is what the court has done throughout American history, looking at multiple sources. What's new now is the justice saying everything is irrelevant except what was the original meaning of a constitutional provision. Where do you see that turn having been made? Originalism develops in the early 1970s as a way for conservatives to criticize the liberal decisions of the Warren Court. And I think it especially comes to the fore after Roe v. Wade as a way for conservatives to criticize the abortion decision. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, originalism was thought of as a fringe, dangerous theory. In 1987, Robert Bork got nominated for the Supreme Court. He was impeccably qualified, been a Yale Law professor, the Solicitor General of the United States, was a Federal Court of Appeals judge. He got rejected by the largest margin of any Supreme Court nominee in history. And the reason was his originalist theory was seen as such a risk to privacy, to equality, to speech. And yet, as Republican presidents have picked conservative justices, originalism comes to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are three justices who describe themselves as originalists, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett. And the other three conservatives are very sympathetic to originalism, join the originalist opinions, and often write in those terms. And that's, of course, Roberts, Alito, and Kavanaugh. I think people um, subsequent to Bork learned a lot from his hearings because his fatal error was he was honest and open in his answers about how he viewed that concept. He had no choice, though, because he, in his writings, had endorsed originalism, and he had explicitly said, there's no protection for women Mm -hmm. under equal protection. He had said, there's no protection for privacy, like the right to purchase and use contraceptives, or the right to abortion, in his writings. Mm -hmm. He had said, there's no protection for speech that's of entertainment value. And so the only chance he had for confirmation was to explain away his views. He failed. He failed, yeah. I was being partially facetious, but because we see in the hearings now, what do you think about stare decisis? Oh, I'm all for it, you know, but then we get Dobbs. So rather than continue in speaking somewhat abstractly, I'd like to go and look at a couple of opinions that demonstrate this. And this is going back a little bit in time to 2013 when Escalia was still on the court. But the time my alarm bell started going off with for me was the Shelby County decision. Could you tell us about that? It is a terrible decision that's had tragic effects for our political system. It involves the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which I regard as one of the most important laws adopted in our Mm -hmm. lifetime. And one of the things that it does is it prohibits state and local governments from election systems that discriminate based on race. And it authorizes lawsuits to stop such discrimination. But Congress knew that such lawsuits are time-consuming and expensive. Congress also knew that especially southern states were engaging in what the old arcade game was, whack-a-mole. Yeah. They would adopt a law that was discriminatory, it would get challenged, they'd adopt a new one, and so on. So Congress said in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, for jurisdictions with a history of race discrimination voting, they would need to get pre-approval, called pre-clearance, from the Attorney General before they changed their election system. This worked incredibly well. There were hundreds of instances where especially southern states asked to change their election systems in a discriminatory manner, and the attorney general said no. There were thousands of instances where they didn't even try. Mm -hmm. These provisions for preclearance were scheduled to expire in 2007. In 2006, Congress held 15 hearings, produced a record of about 20,000 pages, documenting the continued need for preclearance. Congress approved it with the Senate voting in favor, 98 to nothing, and there were only 33 no votes in the House. Right. Can you imagine many things Never. today that would pass nothing. 98 to nothing? Not no even votes? a post office right. could get named. 
President George W. Bush, no liberal, signed the extension to law for another 25 years. Right. Well, Shelby County is near Salem, Alabama. It's a jurisdiction with a long history of race discrimination voting. And it argued that these provisions of the Voting Rights Act were unconstitutional. And on June 25th, 2013, the court five to four declared preclearance unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. Well, Chief Justice Roberts said it violates the principle of equal state sovereignty, right. that Congress must treat all states alike. But where is that found in the Constitution? It's certainly not part of the original meaning of the 14th or 15th Amendment. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also passed the Reconstruction Act that created military rule over some of the southern states. Immediately after Shelby County, states like Texas and North Carolina put into effect discriminatory laws where preclearance mm-hmm. had been denied. A study showed that after Shelby County, black voter participation in the United States went down by 2.5%, the first decreases since the Voting Rights Act was adopted in 1965. Yeah. So what's interesting in the theme that we're talking about is that even though the notion of equal state sovereignty isn't found anywhere in the Constitution, the what we'll call conservative or quasi-originalist judges in 2013 found a concept to rule the statute to be unconstitutional. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that the conservative justice professed to be originalist don't follow originalism when it yeah. doesn't get the results they want. Right. And this is such a powerful example of that and one that has, I say, such yeah. profound effects on our political system. Right. That's why I say it set off some alarm bells because it just, the, the logic of it was questionable and the harm that followed was not at all questionable. Let's, before, I want to go to the Section 2 part of the Voting Rights Act that's under at the court now, but before we go there, I want to go to some other decisions that actually have been made because they're more tangible. Um, so let's take a look at the Dobbs decision. Um, Alito's opinion that was pre-released and uh, professed to be based on history and tradition with regard to abortion at the time the Constitution was adopted or the Equal Protection Clause was adopted, whichever you want to prefer. Um, What are the flaws in the logic of that case? The premise of Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs is that a right should be protected only if it's the text, part of the original meaning, or a long, unbroken tradition. Mm -hmm. I think that's wrong. Rights should be protected when they're part of our evolving sense of decency. Roe versus Wade was 1973. It was 49 years. I think the court gives no weight to that history whatsoever. The Supreme Court has protected privacy under the liberty of the due process clause for a century. It didn't start with Roe mm-hmm. versus Wade. Right. The court has protected rights such as the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right to refuse medical care, the right of consenting adults to engage in sexual activity, all under privacy. None of those rights would be justified under Justice Alito's approach. Mm -hmm. And I think Roe was correct. Laws that prohibit abortion infringe women's fundamental ability to make key choices about their life. And Dobbs was not a decision about constitutional law. Dobbs was that there were conservatives who have long wanted to overrule abortion made a majority on the Supreme Court. Just as a matter of logic, how can we look for a history and tradition around abortion at a time when women under the Constitution were not even given the right to vote, let alone the right to an abortion. Part of the problem from an originalist perspective is that women didn't participate in the political. There were no women at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. There were minimal participation of women in 1868. Women did not have the right to vote until 1920. But also... Abortion as a procedure today is very different than abortion. Couldn't have thought yeah, of that. Yeah. Over half of all abortions are now induced by medication. 
That didn't exist in 1868 mm-hmm. or 1787. Abortion as a surgical procedure is quite minor now, far less dangerous than childbirth. That wasn't true in 1868 or 1787. To me, all of this says, why should we be limited to just what they understood in the world of 1787 or 1868? Yeah. Yeah. When the world was being understood through the eyes and the brains of white Christian men who owned slaves. And that's our reference point. And 25 of the 59 people who were at the Constitutional Convention were slave owners. Yeah. So just one comment about that opinion, because you said they didn't agree, but... They said more than they didn't agree with Roe. They they very strongly said it was egregiously wrong. That's right. The exact phrase in Justice Alito's opinion yeah. was, and I'm quoting, egregiously wrong and exceedingly poorly reasoned. Yeah. What people often forget is that Roe was a seven to two decision. Mm-hmm. It was written by Justice Harry Blackman, who had been appointed by a Republican President Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. The majority included Chief Justice Warren Burger. And Justice Lewis Powell, who had appointed Republican presidents. Right. Even more dramatic, in 1992, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court 5-4 to four reaffirmed Roe and said states can't prohibit abortions before viability. All five justices in the majority reaffirming Roe were appointed by Republican presidents. Blackman by Nixon, mm-hmm. Stevens by Ford, O'Connor and Kennedy by Reagan, and Souter by the first President Bush. Yeah. Actually, I think this is an aside comment. It's a fairly recent phenomenon that we start identifying justices and judges by whom appoint what president appointed them as though somehow if Reagan appointed you, you're you're a Reagan person. And if Jimmy Carter appointed you, you're a Jimmy Carter person. We we didn't think of the court that way. At least I don't. You may disagree, but it was... um, more like people considered questions on the merits and not on their personal values. This is the first time in history that the ideology of the justices perfectly corresponds to the political party of the presidents who appointed them. Mm-hmm. So the six conservative justices were all appointed by Republican presidents. The three liberal justices were appointed by Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. Until recently, we had liberal justices who were appointed by Republicans. Think of John Paul Stevens or David yeah, Souter. Sure. We've had conservatives appointed by Democrats. Think of Byron White, who was appointed by President Byron, Kennedy, wait, or Felix Frankfurter, who was mm-hmm. appointed by President Roosevelt. Yeah. So I think that the way in which we're much more politically divided today also influences the justice we have and how we perceive them. And, and, and unfortunately, how we get polarized over decisions that we might disagree with but recognize the court has the authority to decide. But we, we magnify that polarization now into anger because we feel as though they're not reflecting what the, where the drift of American opinion is going. And I think a crucial question for the long term about the Supreme Court is at a time when our society is so deeply politically polarized, what will it mean for the Supreme Court to so clearly come down on one side of that divide mm-hmm. and so far to the right. The Supreme Court at this moment has its lowest approval ratings in history. Mm-hmm. The Marquette University poll in July gave it a 38% approval and a 61% disapproval. A Gallup poll in June had the Supreme Court with a 25% public confidence rating, the lowest in history. And I think that's a real threat to the court, and you're part of the danger to democracy. Yeah. And which, before we go to the gun control decision, because I want to go there, but I'm, I want to elaborate on that point, because it's not just approval. Um, when we talk about the president, we talk about approval or disapproval or so forth. When we talk about Congress, we talk about the degree to dis- of dysfunction that it may be showing us at any given time. But the word that's attached to the court is legitimacy which is really a fundamental assault on the role. I don't assault is the wrong term, but a fundamental allegation regarding the manner in which the court is exercising its Article Three powers. 
And there was a little interesting dialogue that you might narrate for us between Roberts and Kagan about legitimacy. Justice Kagan gave a talk where she expressed great concerns about the court's legitimacy. She was clear she wasn't talking about any specific decision. Right. And Chief Justice Roberts took offense to that. Yeah. And Justice Alito gave a talk recently, the same thing, saying that it was crossing the line to say that the court's undermining its legitimacy. I think what this reflects is, no matter what the public face, there's deep tensions among the justices on the court. Mm -hmm. And there are tensions between the conservative justice who just overruled Roe or expanded gun rights and the liberal justices with a very different vision of the Constitution and society. Let's go to the gun rights um, decision, um, the New York right to carry statute, uh, because what we're seeing quickly play out is federal courts throwing out various state laws regulating that. So tell us what Thomas did with that New York statute. I just want to put this in a little bit of context. From 1791 to 2008, not one federal, state, or local gun regulation was found by the Supreme Court to violate the Second Amendment. In the handful of cases about the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court always said it means what it says. It's about a right to have guns for militia service. In June 2008, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court said the Second Amendment takes the right to have guns in the home for the sake of security. Mm-hmm. In the case that came down on June 23rd, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the court declared unconstitutional a New York law that had been adopted in 1907. Yeah. It was a law that said you can only have a weapon in public, particularly a concealed weapon, right. if you get a permit. And to get a permit, among other things, you have to show a safety need for it. California's law was identical. And the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, splitting ideological lines, declared that unconstitutional. Justice Thomas said there is a right to have guns in public, and that includes having concealed weapons in public. But then he said the only type of gun regulations that should be allowed are those that were historically permitted. Historically means 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted, or maybe 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified. But he really went further than that. Right, he elevated the Second Amendment above other elements of the Bill of Rights. For all other fundamental rights in the Constitution, the government can infringe them if the government meets what's called in law strict scrutiny. Right. The action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. The government can engage in race discrimination if its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. Mm-hmm. The government can discriminate among speech based on its content if its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. But Justice Thomas' opinion in Bruin said, we're not going to look to whether there's a compelling interest. We're not going to look to whether the means are necessary. The only thing that's relevant is whether or not this was regulation of guns that was historically permitted. Mm-hmm. In fact, he used the words you just said. Mm-hmm. He said, the Second Amendment elevates the right of people to have guns for their safety above all other interests. Yeah. It gives more protection for Second Amendment rights than any other right in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Which strikes me as further than the court needed to go, right? It was much further than the court needed to go, just like in Dobbs, as Chief Justice Roberts said, the court went much further than it needed to go. Fifteen months, yeah. This is a court that has a very conservative agenda, and they're moving it on very fast. So... Just as an example, quickly, there, I read just in the blurb today, there was a federal court just held that the, the rule restricting people from having uh, weapons that where the serial number has been shaved off or the ghost guns where there is no serial number is unconstitutional under the Thomas theory because muskets didn't have serial numbers. And doesn't that show the absurdity of originalism? What is the plausible reason for not allowing the government to acquire serial numbers on guns as a way of tracking something that's dangerous in society? And the fact that in 1791, they didn't feel the need for serial numbers shouldn't tell us whether we need to have them in 2022. 
And the way the courts are feeling bound to go there is because of the elevated um, stature that Thomas gave to the Second Amendment. So there are... Now I'm going to move into the existing term because there are some Trojan horses cases in this term that don't necessarily get a lot of attention but have um, the capacity to do quite a bit of harm. And the first one goes under a very academic name, the independent state legislature theory. This one has a lot of people who are watching this case. It's in North Carolina carefully. And I think it's worth going into because it's important people keep their eye on this one. I completely agree. It's the decision this term that I'm most worried about. I'm going to go back again a little bit. In 2019, in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court said that federal courts can't hear challenges to partisan gerrymandering. That's where the political party that controls the legislature draws election districts to maximize seats for that party. That case also came from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. North Carolina is a purple state, yeah. almost evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. But the Republican legislature drew districts so the Republicans hold 10 or 13 congressional seats from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. After the 2020 census, the North Carolina legislature, still controlled by Republicans, drew districts so Republicans control 10 or 11 of the now 14 seats in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. The North Carolina Supreme Court said this violates the North Carolina state constitution. Right. Well, the North Carolina legislature has gone to the Supreme Court and said, the North Carolina court can't enforce the constitution in this area. It's left entirely to the legislature. Article 1, Section 4 of the constitution says the legislature of the state shall determine the time, place, and manner for elections to Congress. And they say it's left entirely and exclusively to the legislature. Now, another reason people are so worried about this is there's another provision of the Constitution mm-hmm. in Article 2, Section 1, that says the legislature of the state that allocates the electors in the Electoral College. Right. So imagine the court buys this independent state legislature theory. Mm-hmm. And imagine that the 2024 Which election... Buying, buying it means that legislature means legislature, and That's nobody right. has any ability That's right. to... So now at the very least, it means yeah. no court can strike right. down partisan right. gerrymandering. State court, even. That's right. But go back to the presidential election example... Imagine the 2024 election is as close as the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. And imagine a few states, let's make them hypothetically Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, that have Republican <laughs> legislatures, yeah. but the Democratic candidate wins the popular vote. They have laws that say, as to all the states, the winner of the popular vote is to get the electors from the state. But the legislature is saying, now we're awarding the electors to the Republican candidate, and that then determines who's the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. That's what's at stake. I know this series about the future democracy. I think if that happens, this country comes yeah. apart. I don't think our country could survive that happening. And that's not far off from the fake elector alleged scheme that we saw in 2020. Right? right? It was the same game plan. And President Trump urged some of the Republican legislatures to give him the electors, notwithstanding the popular vote. It didn't happen. But I think if the Supreme Court adopts the independent state legislature theory, it's much more likely in 2024. Mm -hmm. It's an absurd theory because always legislative powers have to be exercised consistent with the Constitution, and always it's the role of the court to enforce the Constitution. The Constitution gives Congress many powers, but they have to be used in a constitutional way, and a court can say that it's unconstitutional. Same thing for state legislatures. The fact they have a power doesn't in any way preclude a court from determining whether it's used in a constitutional way. So is this an example of literal reading of what founders' intent was when they wrote the word legislature, or is it a way of achieving an outcome? I think it's entirely a way of achieving an outcome. I mean, it says the time, place, and manner of elections. I don't think that what's involved in this case is about the time, place, and manner of elections, yeah. if you want to focus on it. I mean, there's also a difficulty of asking what the framers intended. The Constitution doesn't mention mm-hmm. the power of courts yeah. to strike down laws. Right. It's silent about that. That comes from a Supreme Court case in 1803 
Marbury versus Madison. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to say, what did the framers think about judicial review of this topic when we don't know what they thought about judicial review at all? Right. So another case similar in the voting area is the Merrill case that was already argued before the court, again, going back to the voting rights. So to differentiate the Merrill issue from the um, Shelby County issue that we talked about. I mentioned there were two crucial parts of the Voting Rights Act. One that we discussed with regard to Shelby County was Section 5 preclearance. The other that I alluded to is Section 2, that says that state and local governments can't have election systems that are discriminatory effect against minority voters. In fact, Congress amended it in 1985 to make clear that proof of a racially discriminatory impact is enough to violate the Voting Rights Act. Mural versus Milligan, that was argued on Tuesday, October 4th, involves Alabama. Alabama's population is about 27% black individuals. But the Alabama legislature, controlled by Republicans, drew the map so that black voters would be a majority in only one of seven congressional districts. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to do that, computers. You either pack all of the black voters in one district or spread them out among many districts. But the reality is they would win only one of seven seats. A three-judge federal court found this violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Two of the judges on that panel were appointed by President Trump. Mm -hmm. One was appointed by President Clinton. Mm -hmm. And the question is, does this violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? I think everyone is worried that the Supreme Court is going to make it much more difficult to prove violations of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But there's something else that could go on here that's very frightening. The Supreme Court has interpreted this statute to mean what it says. Proof of racially discriminatory impact violates the law. The same, as you know, is true with regard to employment discrimination. Mm -hmm. Proof of racially discriminatory impact violates federal employment discrimination law. The Supreme Court has said proof of racially discriminatory impact in housing violates housing law. But some of the justices want to take the position that that's unconstitutional. Justice Scalia articulated this, and now Justice Alito just did at the oral argument. The view is that if there's a requirement to avoid racially discriminatory impact, then race has to be taken into account. And taking into account race violates their view of the Constitution. At the oral argument in Merrill v. Milligan, Justice Alito said, it's wrong to look at race Mm -hmm. in deciding whether there's a violation of the law. And if the court were to go there, then it would gut so many civil rights laws. Well, maybe I'm missing something, but wasn't the 14th Amendment based on providing racial equality? So it was, by definition, based on race. I believe that. But what the conservative justice say is that equal protection is about the government being colorblind. And if that's what equal protection is about, then saying you have to consider race in drawing election districts so you don't have a disproportionate impact against minority voters is inconsistent with being colorblind. And that's what Justice Alito said at the oral argument. And if I can mention, there's two cases to be argued on October 31st Mm -hmm. that involve whether college universities can continue to engage in affirmative action. This is Students for Fair Admission versus University of North Carolina and Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard College. And I think the Supreme Court's going to say the Constitution requires colorblindness. No longer can college universities engage in affirmative action. Let's go back, though, to the argument that the 14th Amendment was intended to be colorblind. A lot of the governmental actions around that time for establishing freedmen um, preferences and act, go, official government acts were not colorblind. So if you're looking at history, why don't you look at that history? I think it's such an important point. The Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment adopted many race-conscious programs that today we would call affirmative action. And one of the points that I make in the book is that when the conservative justices have argued against affirmative action, they never mention, never acknowledge this history. Mm -hmm. So going back to the Harvard University of North Carolina case, um, 
I was interested to see that the Harvard case is actually brought under congressional statute, right? right? Whereas the North Carolina case at least appears to be brought under the Equal Protection Clause. Could you explain the, sure. the reasons for that? The Constitution and its protection of rights and equality applies only to government institutions. Private institutions don't have to comply with the Constitution. Mm -hmm. The University of North Carolina is obviously a public university, so equal protection applies to it. Mm -hmm. Harvard is a private university, so the Constitution and equal protection don't apply to it. But there's a federal statute, Title VI of the 1964 Rights Act, that says recipients of federal funds can't discriminate based on race. And the Supreme Court has said that Title VI means the same thing as equal protection. Now, the bottom line of this is, if the Supreme Court does what I predicted, affirmative action will become unconstitutional slash illegal in all public, in all private colleges in the United States. Based on essentially how Merrill comes out. Is that right? The Alabama case. Not necessarily, because in Merrill versus Milligan, the court could find a Voting Rights Act violation in a way that doesn't affect affirmative okay. action. Yeah. The court could narrow the Voting Rights Act by making it harder to prove that districting violates the Voting Rights Act without reaching the larger question. Mm-hmm. Or the court could reach the larger question of whether or not disproportionate impact liability is unconstitutional. I don't think they're going to go that far in that case. But I do think in the Harvard and North Carolina cases, they're going to say college universities can't engage in affirmative action. I think with six conservative justices, they've got the majority. And this is a place where Chief Justice Roberts has been very outspoken in opposing all forms of affirmative action. Um, He he has a fairly famous quote on that. He does. Which I'm sure you have committed to memory. Um, in a case called Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle School District Number 1 in 2007, he said the way to stop discriminating based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. Right. And I'm still trying to understand how to parse that. Let me just check um, this because sometimes the questions fit right in with what we're talking about. Um, um, let me see if we're ahead of ourselves. No, we're we're pretty good here. Um, we will come to your questions, though. Thank you. So another area that I is a again a, a, a somewhat of a sleeper because it just doesn't get the sizzle um, in the media is the um, dismantling. I will call it what we'll call the administrative state, the the way our government actually gets things done. Um, we saw the EPA decision last term. There's a Clean Water Act opinion up there now. Tell us about this. Sure. Starting in the late 19th century, Congress began creating administrative agencies to implement federal laws. This gradually increased until you get to the 1930s when there's an explosion of federal agencies created. The Securities and Exchange Commission mm-hmm. to regulate business, the Federal Trade Commission to regulate business practices, and we can go on and on. And, and the National Labor Relations National Labor Relations yeah. Act, the National Labor Relations Board. Yeah. And then additional agencies get created, like the Environmental Protection Agency. And Congress generally gives them a mandate, but then leaves the implementation to the agency. And the case that you alluded to is West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency decided on Thursday, June 30th, mm-hmm. it involved the question of whether or not the EPA could regulate greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired plants. And this is crucial to the problem of climate change. And the Supreme Court, in another 6-3 to three decision, said that the EPA could not regulate the greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired plants. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court and he said, When there's a major question of economic or political significance, an administrative agency can act only if there's clear guidance from Congress. Mm -hmm. He said Congress wasn't sufficiently clear here that the EPA could do this, even though the statute gives the EPA the authority to regulate these emissions from stationary Mm -hmm. sources, which include power plants. Well, what's a major question? Yeah. What's sufficiently <laughs> right. specific What's, to meet this? 
Yeah. Um, I can count on less than the fingers of one hand the Supreme Court cases that ever even mentioned the so-called major questions doctrine. Mm-hmm. But it opens the door to challenges to administrative sure. agency action, protecting health and safety, safeguarding the environment, regulating business. Because anybody who doesn't like a federal regulation now says, this is a major question, yeah. and Congress wasn't sufficiently specific. Kind of a twin of equal state sovereignty concept. And it's interesting, it's made up by the conservatives. Yeah. At the same time, they're saying they don't want the courts to be making things up. They yeah. just want the courts to follow original meaning. And there's also another track on this of, of a lot of these agencies have what we'll call quasi-judicial power, like the FTC and the NLRB and, and, it, and the SEC. And there are um, cases in the system attacking whether those are constitutional delegations. Many agencies have administrative law judges. I mean, to mention one that some people might have had exposure with, the Social Security Agency. The Social Security Administration has a large number of administrative law judges, and this is to provide an easy way to adjudicate disputes about somebody's eligibility for Social Security benefits or the level of benefits they receive. The National Labor Relations Board operates entirely through an adjudicatory process. If agencies can't engage in adjudication, then we really do prevent government from being able to protect people and do things that we all accept that government must do. Mm -hmm. What is the um, antipathy towards... um, I mean, let me back up. We, We have to recognize the world is a lot more complicated than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago in terms of technology and the, the, the effect that we have on each other just by the, the, you know, the so-called butterfly effect. Um, yet this antipathy towards what I'll call an effective and efficient way of managing at a national level issues of common interest and common good seems reprehensible. I don't get what's wrong with it. What we haven't touched on about the current court is that it's a very pro-business court. There have been statistical studies done by political scientists that show that this is the most pro-business court that there's been since the 1930s. When you're talking about the administrative state, almost always it's businesses Mm -hmm. challenging government regulations. West Virginia versus EPA, in addition to the state, was coal companies challenging EPA regulation. Justice Kagan wrote a very powerful dissent we should talk about how greenhouse gas emissions and climate change are imperiling the planet and all life on it. Mm-hmm. There's no mention of that in the majority opinion. So, but it, is it just pro-business? I mean, there's got to be something deeper than that. A, a, a view of how our government is supposed to work or not I think work? I think there's many reinforcing things for the conservative justices. I think that they are very pro-business. I think there is a hostility to the administrative state. There's always been a refrain of get the government off the backs of business and the American people. And so I think that that's there. Um, I, I think that you have to put this in the context of a court that is very politically conservative and they're reflecting the conservative antipathy to government regulation. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's go back to your, your book. And what I'd like to do is emphasize the part of the book where you talk about what you think is the right um, judicial philosophy for the court to have. And, and let's, ex- let's go positive and let's expand on how that should work. I believe that there should be a living constitution, a constitution that evolves to meet society's needs. Let me give you a powerful example, Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. If one were to be an originalist, Brown was wrongly decided. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment voted to segregate the District Columbia Public Schools. Mm -hmm. There is no indication that those who adopted or ratified the 14th Amendment meant outlaw segregation. But I think everyone agrees that it was imperative that Brown end segregation in the United States. Or another example, 
Loving versus Virginia. This was the case in 1976 that said that states couldn't prohibit interracial marriage. When the 14th Amendment was adopted, almost every state prohibited interracial marriage. California outlawed interracial marriage until 1948. Yeah. In 1967, when Loving was decided, 16 states still had laws that prohibited interracial marriage. To me, this shows why we shouldn't be fixed to the understandings mm. of 1868, yeah. why it has to be a living constitution. Yeah. Yeah, the, the image that comes to me is in Jurassic Park when they find that insect in amber and frozen in amber, and we're, we're freezing our constitution in amber. And and a, one of the areas that's so been so much important part of our the way we view ourselves is the distinction between religion and government. They both are valid but they should stay out of each other's kitchen. Take us down the line of cases the court has been pursuing there. There's Thomas Jefferson, not a liberal law professor, who (laughs) said there should be a wall that separates church and state. And for decades, the Supreme Court followed that philosophy. On the other hand, now the Supreme Court is obliterating any notion of a wall separating church and state, and very much aggressively protecting free access religion. I'll mention two cases from the end of June. One is Carson versus Macon. There are parts of the state of Maine that are too rural to support public school systems. So in those areas, school administrative units give money to parents to send their children to private school. Maine law says it has to be a secular private school, not a religious private school. Two families brought a challenge to this in the Supreme Court, Six to three said whenever the government provides funds for secular private schools, it is constitutionally required by funds for religious schools. So here in California, we have charter schools Mm -hmm. where the government pays for the schools, but they're privately run. California law says charter schools must be secular. Is that now unconstitutional? Mm -hmm. As Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor said in the dissents, this completely ignores the Establishment Clause. Or maybe to put it another way, for decades the issue was, when may the government give forms of aid to religious schools without that being a violation of the Establishment Clause? Now the court says the government is required to give aid to religious schools or it violates free exercise. Right. And just to remind us that the kind of the marriage and their free exercise and establishment in the First Amendment. It's a little tricky. Why don't you explain that? It's two provisions. One that says that the government can't have a law respecting the establishment of religion. The other says the government can't have a law abridging the free exercise of religion. And I can illustrate it with the other case that came down on June 27th. It's a case called Kennedy versus Bremerton Schools. It involved a high school football coach. Joseph Kennedy, at a public school in Bremerton in Washington State. And he made it a practice after games of going and kneeling on the 50-yard line and engaging in silent prayer. Sometimes players from his team would join him. Sometimes players from both teams would join him. The school got a complaint from a parent. The father said, my son and our family are atheists. and My son feels if he doesn't participate in the prayer, he'll get less playing time. The school said to the coach, don't do that. The coach briefly complied, and then he began going on the field after games and delivering a Christian inspirational message that he called a prayer. Mm-hmm. And again, sometimes he's joined by his players, sometimes by players from the opposing team, sometimes people from the stands. And the school suspended the coach and gave him a poor performance evaluation. He sued. The lower courts ruled against the coach, saying that it violates the Establishment Clause mm-hmm. to prayer in public schools. Mm-hmm. For 60 years, the Supreme Court has said without exception that prayer in schools, even voluntary prayer, unconstitutional. The Supreme Court, 6-3 to three again, ruled in favor of the football coach. Justice Gorsuch wrote for the court and said it violates the free exercise of religion and free speech rights of the coach to keep him, punish him for praying. Justice Sotomayor writes the dissent and says, what of the Establishment yeah. Clause? And six decades of jurisprudence yeah. outlawing prayer. Right. So notice here we've gone from yeah. 
prayer in schools violating the Establishment Clause to the exclusion of prayer violating free exercise of religion and free speech. Yeah. And there's actually more subtlety to that opinion as well. If you read the majority opinion facts and the dissent facts, you think they were different uh, cases. You're absolutely right. It's stunning. Justice Alito characterized this as the right of the football coach to pray in private after the school event is over. Mm-hmm. Justice Sotomayor included pictures in her dissent yeah. showing the coach on the field surrounded by players saying, this is in private, and even if the game is over, it's still with everyone in the stands as part of the event. Yeah. And it's, it's a very stark contrast. You, we, we talk about alternative facts and things like that these days, and this opinion to me is not an, perhaps, an, perhaps eligible to be... Um, Discuss. So let's. I want to go to the audience questions because they're always very revealing. Here's a great one um, because we went back to Shelby County, and this uh, question says, What about going back to Citizens United? It's such an important case that changed our political system. It was a decision in 2010, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, that said that corporations have the right to spend unlimited amounts of money in election campaigns. The Achaeans elected were defeated. It was a five to four decision, the conservative justice in the majority, the liberal justice dissenting. I want to take it back to our discussion of originalism. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any plausible argument that the framers of the Constitution in 1791 thought that they were empowering corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money in election campaigns. Corporations didn't exist then as they do now. Just the same that campaign spending didn't exist then. Parties didn't exist. That's right. I'm going to go back to Kennedy versus Bremerton Schools for a second. I mean, if you ask the question, what did the framers in 1791 think about the right of a football coach at a public school to engage in prayer on the field? It's an absurd question. Yeah. But nonetheless, the conservative justices found that restrictions on campaign spending by corporations violated the First Amendment. And as I say, this had such an enormous effect in our political system as corporations can spend as much as they want to get candidates elected or defeated. And going back to the discussion around legitimacy, and I'm glad that you brought up Citizens United because part of what seems to be going on is um, taking cases sometimes beyond where they need to go in them. And if you think about, as I recall, Citizens United was a kind of, it was about a documentary film and whether it was, um, you know, supporting of a, a particular campaign or not. And, and the court took the case and escalated the stakes way beyond what the original parties had thought about. Let me make a more general point that goes to the, what we're talking about tonight. Mm-hmm. For decades, conservatives criticized the Warren Court and liberal decisions as judicial activism and professed the desire for judicial restraint. Mm -hmm. That vocabulary has largely gone away now. I'm not sure what judicial activism means. I often think it's the label we use for the decisions we don't like. But if I were to define judicial activism, I'd say when the court is upholding a law, it's being more restrained, referring to the government. When it's striking it down, it's more active. When it's overruling precedent, it's more active. When it's following precedent, it's more restrained. When it rules narrowly, it's more restrained. When it rules broadly, it's more active. Take Citizens United. The Supreme Court strikes down the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, key Mm -hmm. provisions of it. The court overrules a seven-year-old decision that it upheld those identical provisions. Mm -hmm. And, as you say, where the court could have ruled very narrowly just on a statutory question, It rules broadly, declaring this unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I could say the same about Shelby County, declaring unconstitutional the Voting Rights Act, overruling precedent, ruling very broadly. Mm -hmm. And so, and the same about Dobbs. The court could have ruled more narrowly, and certainly overrules a forty-nine-year-old precedent. How hard do you think Roberts was working to try to get the? Because that went up on a fifteen-week ban. And um, Roberts, in his um, concurring, 
upheld, agreed with the majority, agreeing that the 15-week ban was okay without overturning Roe. Do you think he worked hard to try to find another judge to join him on that? Absolutely. And we know from reporting of those who talked to individuals within the court, Roberts was doing that. Joan Piscubic, who covers the Supreme Court for CNN, was able to get people talk to her about how hard Roberts was working. Roberts, as Chief Justice, cares enormously about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Roberts tends to prefer, generally, narrower rulings that are more incremental as opposed to dramatic rulings that greatly change the law. So Roberts wanted to uphold the Mississippi law, let states prohibit abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy, mm-hmm. but leave open the question whether to overrule Roe. Right. But it was apparent after the case was argued in the Supreme Court last December 1st that Roberts didn't have the votes. He tried, and he continued to try to persuade one of the justices to join him, but he couldn't do it. My guess is once the draft opinion was released, nobody was going to change, just because it would be too hard to explain why they had changed. I think that's true, but the moment the court granted review in Dobbs, I thought they're going to overrule Roe versus Wade. I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times that came out the day after they granted certain Dobbs and said, there's no reason for them to take this, but if they want to overrule Roe. And... Any doubts I had were erased when the case was argued on December 1st when Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett made clear they were going to vote to overrule Roe. Well, also, how about the Texas heartbeat? That's right. Right? Go run through that. Sure. Texas adopted a law, SBA, that prohibits abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy and creates civil liability for those who aid or abet abortions. A reproductive health care facility in Texas went to the Supreme Court for the law was to go into effect on September 1st, 2021, and he asked the Supreme Court to enjoin it. And the Supreme Court, five to four, refused to do so. Mm-hmm. The five were the same as in Dobbs, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And the court allowed that law prohibiting abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy to remain in effect from September 1st to this day. And, of course, it was, at least until Dobbs, blatantly unconstitutional. That was an obvious signal. There were five votes to overrule Roe. And something as consequential as that, they turned it on whether there was federal jurisdiction or something. I never quite got it. The general law is that if a state has an unconstitutional statute, the way to challenge it is to sue state officials and get an injunction. Right. And this is what the Supreme Court has said for over a century. So if California adopts an unconstitutional law restricting the speech of law professors, and I want to challenge (laughs) it, I sue the governor, the attorney general, for an injunction. But the Supreme Court, in its case called Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, said you can only sue state officials if they play a role in enforcing the law. Mm -hmm. So when a law creates civil liability, since state officials don't enforce that, You can't sue them. California adopted a gun law this summer that creates civil liability in certain circumstances with regard to guns, such as giving a handgun to a minor 18 or a long gun to a minor under 18. And the idea that California is trying to do is to copy the Texas law and say, it's just civil liability. Work two ways. And I think the Supreme Court is wrong. If it's an unconstitutional law, then the federal court should have jurisdiction to be able to enjoin it. What would happen if, because that case, the Texas law requires or allows me to sue you if you violate that law, right? It doesn't mean the uh, district attorney comes in. That's correct. So it's, it's a private cause of action, like if you chop down a tree in my backyard. Um, so suppose they set up a, a civil case where a private individual sues a doctor or whoever. Will the, do you think the court will take that case at this point? Assume that Roe versus Wade was still the law. Yeah. And if a private person sues the doctor, the doctor can argue that the law is unconstitutional as a defense. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in light of Dobbs, the Texas law is constitutional. But let me put it in the gun context. Okay. Imagine that somebody is yeah. sued under the California law for selling a gun to a minor 
in a way that is impermissible. Mm-hmm. The defendant in such a civil suit can, as a defense, argue the law is unconstitutional, but no one can go to court to get an injunction to have yeah. it stopped from being on the books, yeah. keep it stopped from being enforced. And if you're a doctor practicing medicine, you don't want to violate a law in order to vindicate yourself. Easy example. There's a right still to same-sex marriage. Imagine a conservative state adopts a law that says anyone who performs a same-sex marriage is liable for $100,000. Mm-hmm. If somebody was courageous enough to violate that, as a defense, they could argue the unconstitutional, but the law in the books likely means that no one will ever take the chance. Yeah, that's the, yeah. You want to be the person who puts your head in the right. in the guillotine. So, um, a question: We have a, a few minutes left, and I want to get to some more questions. Could you talk about how the court is using the shadow docket? Sure. The shadow docket involves matters that come to the court for an emergency ruling. This isn't new. We're all familiar with instances where people on death row, soon before their scheduled execution, go to the Supreme Court for an emergency order to stop the execution, and occasionally that happens. But what's changed in recent years is that the Supreme Court is deciding many more matters on the shadow docket, and is doing so in a way that's quite inconsistent, that using the shadow docket to hand down rulings that favor conservatives and then not being involved when the same principles would say they should for more liberal results. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give an example that we talked about earlier. Merrill versus Milligan, yeah. the voting case argued right. a week ago Tuesday. The Supreme Court last spring on its shadow docket stopped the lower court opinion from going into effect, which would have prevented the discriminatory maps being used in the Alabama primary and general election. Mm-hmm. In order for a court to do that, they're supposed to find that there's a substantial likelihood that the challenging party will prevail on the merits. Mm-hmm. The court didn't do that. Right. And yet in other instances, the court doesn't get involved. Um, the bottom line is the court is deciding a lot more matters yeah. without briefing an oral argument on its mm-hmm. emergency docket. Mm-hmm. And all the ideological biases are especially coming out on the shadow docket. That's, I think, what was the, behind this question. And an interesting question about a case that I didn't bring up, and um, I think we have time to bring it up. The, we remember the Baker case from Colorado, right, about whether um, a baker has a right to refuse to make a wedding cake for a, 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 gay, a, a gay wedding. So there's a case, I'm not, I, I should let you explain it, but it has to do with a web designer. Exactly. Yeah. The case is called 303 Creative versus Alenis. It involves a woman in Colorado, Lori Smith, who has a business designing websites. And she wants to design websites for weddings, but she says she doesn't want to design websites for same-sex weddings because of religious belief. Colorado has a law that says that business establishments can't discriminate on the basis of race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. California has a similar law, the UNRWA Act. The Federal Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit said, Colorado has a compelling interest in stopping discrimination against gays and lesbians, and that that justifies infringing her free exercise of religion and her free speech. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court granted review, and I think most believe that the Supreme Court's going to rule in favor of Lori Smith. There's always a tension between liberty and equality. Any law that prohibits discrimination limits a freedom to sure, discriminate. Sure. But our society has made the choice for 60 years that stopping discrimination is more important than freedom to discriminate. I think the court's going to say the opposite here. And once the court says there's a freedom to discriminate based on your religious beliefs or speech, then it's not just going to be about sexual orientation. Yeah, it's the or speech. It's the or speech part because the 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 wedding cake was a religion issue, but here they're saying that she, requiring the web designer to design a website uh, violates her speech rights. Right? The underlying issue is the same. Does the government have a compelling interest in prohibiting discrimination? that would justify saying, if she has a business, she can't refuse to serve gays mm-hmm. and lesbians. And I think it's going to be another six to three decision. 
but ruling in favor of her. Hmm. But what if instead of it being a web designer, what if it's an employer who says, I'm an Orthodox Jew or an observant Muslim and believe that men and women shouldn't be in the same workplace, so I'm not going to hire women right. based on my religious right. beliefs. I don't know how to draw a distinction there. Right. That's, well, that's, I think, the subtext of a lot of what you've been talking about tonight is it's not just these decisions. It's the extrapolation from these decisions in so many different directions, like the one we talked about, about the serial number on a gun, which strike, strikes me as just a matter of keeping track of things. Um, but it's the extrapolation, as you say, of that, of that case into all kinds of context. And it's, it's not that every one of those cases gets to the Supreme Court. It's that an individual exercises a discriminatory notion based on citing the Supreme Court. And, you know, you're on the defensive if you're trying to say that's an, an unfair way of running our society. And maybe that's the point that we're really getting to is that as our society evolves from a small group of white men who wrote constitution to our pluralistic, multiracial, multi-ethnic society today, we need to have greater openness and greater sensitivity to individual rights and individual freedoms and, the, and revel in affirmative action and revel in diversity and not be putting the car in reverse. And, of course, that's the thesis of the book that I wrote. It makes no sense to say that the Constitution today is limited to what they thought in 1787 for an agrarian slave society. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's always been until now and why it should be a living constitution. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect um, sentence to end on. It also helps me remind you that Irwin will be outside and with, with the books and will be signing the books. And I, I heartily recommend it to you if you're, you want to get some insight into understanding this large dynamic that's going on within how we think about the role of our judiciary and the role of all of us as people in the society. So to Irwin, on behalf of the Commonwealth Club and our great audience and everybody on YouTube, I thank you very much, and we will meet again. I thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.